0: at Mind Body Leadership, where she provides strategic counsel and cultural design guidance for leaders' upending industries. Welcome to the show, Jade.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you. So to start things off, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got your start in this work.
1: So interestingly, it's actually a family business. I grew up in an acupuncture and leadership graduate school. So, you know, I don't know how much of the story you want, but essentially my parents uh, started an acupuncture school about 1980. They were already connected in with organization development, you know, the early stages of what would later be human resources and big part of social movements in various regards. Uh, But early on in the acupuncture clinical programs, um, some of their, some of the other people in the leadership world came to them and said, you're doing something and we want to learn how to do it. And so they began a program that later became, I think the first master's degree in transformative leadership and social change in the U
0: S. Wow. Very cool. And so what was the connection to acupuncture? How did they make that transition from acupuncture to transformative leadership?
1: So interestingly, I don't know that it's so much of a leap. So organization development has a lot of I'm a history person so it ha- actually has a lot of sort of roots with the human potential movement and other things that actually have a lot of eastern right if you want to go appropriate maybe influences in it um, and my parents came across acupuncture actually as they were traveling the world and had had a couple of different physiological ailments and got sent to a a guy in rural UK, actually, who treated them, but more importantly said to my father, your hands are very wise, they were protecting your heart. And the idea that the body was wise really got my dad's brain going because he also had um, a mentor named Ivan Illich, who is a social critic, historian of the sort of 14th century, really interested in how Europe became a colonial force in some regards via the church and and so interested in sort of like you know why do we do the things we do and how do we make up these ideas and so sense perception is something that changes with each technology we intervene with so long story short my dad heard when this man said to him, your body is really wise, he said, okay, if that's true, and that feels true to me, then almost all of Western paradigm is upside down. So that was actually what my parents started with. They didn't really, they didn't care necessarily about the uh, about the acupuncture at first. They later did because, of course right? You draw in all of the different people and they actually became the first boards of acupuncture in the US were conferences that they pulled together essentially around the time that Korean acupuncturists in California started being arrested for technically practicing medicine without a license, right? So I don't know if some doctor decided that turf, you know, the turf was being stepped on or something, but that was when they realized they had to actually integrate with a Western medicine model to some extent in order to Continue to be able to practice. So they were actually instrumental in getting a license in all of these states. So acupuncture was one thing, but actually, acupuncture as a vehicle for social change and social reform. Thinking, thinking about the body as, as a sort of wise as a wisdom teacher for life. Because the other piece of that that was kind of interesting was that you know he said to my dad, "Your hands are protecting your heart," and hadn't said anything. But about three weeks later, there was an article in the New York Times that the medicine my father had been given for dysentery was being pulled off the market because it was causing heart attacks. But the acupuncturists hadn't known anything about that. So they actually then just, they insisted that he teach them, but really what he was teaching them and what they realized he was teaching them was, stay in your senses, don't make up a lot of stories, (laughs) right, all of this. And it was pretty classical uh, version of acupuncture that that had been largely actually um, destroyed via, communism in China. Mm. So what was often practiced by that time in China was a more modern version of medicine that was actually intended to get people back on the line back to work very quickly. And so what he was teaching them was actually something that had been kept, you know, kept on the side between Japan and, and uh, France. So all of this comes back to essentially in nineteen eighty three the Rouse company is a developer coming to the acupuncture clinic because they're all in this planned city of columbia maryland which is also kind of an interesting socio you know economic ethnic uh idealistic really a planned city to try to to right some of the the wrongs in the world and they came and they said you're doing something and it's not really about the needles and we want you to teach it to us because if you don't teach it to us you're doing the world a disservice and so, out of that, first started a, a program called Sophia, and it was about five elements and it was about the seasons, and it was very, still very like a hippie and a little bit sort of like enmeshed in the acupuncture world and conversations to some extent. And I still think that way, actually. When I practice, I think of I'm, I'm teaching leaders mostly to be the needle in the company.
0: Mm, interesting. I want to come back to the wise hands and this notion that the body is. Perhaps an antenna or an instrument that can help us see and feel things in ways that sense, you know, it's it's sensory organ. And it's something that we talk about a lot in our facilitation training. So I think this might be a really interesting angle to explore with you, given your history there. So, how can leaders tap into this, this ability to use their body as an antenna or a way of sensing what's happening?
1: Well, maybe the best way to, to, to do that would be, you know, tell me a little bit more about how your facilitation training currently works mm. or maybe even something, you know, I do a fair amount of facilitating myself. And it's, you know, at some point something will come up and you know that you have to train your facilitators to navigate that moment
0: mm-hmm. in
1: a particular way. And so is there one that's like a common one or that came up recently for you in in something?
0: Well, the way we introduce it is through a bit of mindfulness, just taking a moment to first just check in, like, are you feeling hot right now? Mm -hmm. Do you feel a little, is there a little sweat in your armpits or, you know, what's your body doing right now? Like, let's check in with it. Mm -hmm. And after experiencing that moment, actually have a little debrief and discussion with them about how often do you... Check in with yourself before you walk into a room that you're about to facilitate or a Zoom that you're about to facilitate. How often have you walked in feeling like your heart is racing or that it feels uncomfortable or on edge, or you already know, or in your head, you're already convinced that everyone's thinking in a certain way because of some feeling or some energy you're bringing into the room? And so tapping into that is A, the first step. And usually the second step is asking the room or asking yourself, is this something I'm bringing in or is this something that the room is doing to me? Because if it's something I'm bringing in, I don't need to dump that on everyone. Mm -hmm. If it's something that's already in the room, I need to A, not let it influence me and then also find out what it is because my assumptions on what it is might be incorrect. And until I ask, I don't know.
1: Yeah. So... Essentially, you're already doing a lot of what I'm talking about and what I often am doing is actually taking it sort of the next few steps, which is how do I recognize and I, I don't think in terms of causality, causality is mm. kind of a modern Western idea. Um, mm. Mutual arising is sort of an older construct in which uh, this happens here and this happens here, almost like entanglement, actually. (laughs) And what that does is it also allows me to recognize that no one's doing it to me and I'm not doing it to someone else. And so it gives me a little bit of space then to say, huh, I have this sensation in my body. And then I can say, anybody else notice that they have a sensation in their body? So I can check it out without it having to be um, an idea that I'm making people feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. But it still honors the fact that, um, you know, I don't know how much you talk about resonance or, you know, when you play a violin string over here, if you've got a guitar that has the same, you know, or another violin nearby, that same string will will vibrate. Do you know this, this construct?
0: Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite innovation stories. Actually, there was an innovation challenge. And a chip manufacturer, potato chip, (laughs) was wanting to make a fat-free chip. And they're like, how do we do that? And they're trying to get the oils out of the chip. And the winner was a violin player. They said, resonate the chip at the resonant frequency of the oil, and it'll just jump off the chip.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? So you get that that happens. And most people don't know how to tune their own resonance, right? So they don't actually know how to play the violin that they are. Mm. I actually think sometimes I talk about this as um, like knowing where the light switch is. It's actually the name of the first sort of in my series of of things that I teach. Often is is finding the light switch because essentially, can you imagine walking in your house, right, and it's dark and you don't know where any of the light switches are? But then somebody else walks in the house and like turns the light switches on and off all the time, or somebody in another house is turning your light switches on and off all the time. It's what it's like living in a body where you walk into a room and suddenly somebody else can say how you should feel. It's like somebody else is in charge of the light switch that is your body. So the first place is to just find the vocabulary you already have, right? You already have a vocabulary. Most people at this stage have been around long enough we will say, Oh yeah, I always when I get tension, it's always in my neck, or it's in or I get stun my stomach feels a little uncomfortable or right. So you've got a little bit of a vocabulary. And the, the, the danger I think is that we can tend to want to standardize that and say, you know, when you feel this, it's this, or when you feel this is this. But actually each of us is unique. And to honor that, we can actually realize we got a whole language that our body is constantly doing. Is it this kind of a sensation in your body, or is it this kind of sensation? Like for me the difference between uh, i have something i just i really want to say and i have something that's a little scary to say but very but will land powerfully and effectively and is important to say are very similar sensations in my belly but distinct and the only way i know that is through practice a lot of rigorous practice of checking that kind of checking in that you're talking about so often so even with your facilitators i'd probably say okay, it's one thing to check in before you go into the room to facilitate. What if you put a little reminder somewhere on your wrists or your hands or someplace where you'll see it and it'll interrupt your visual field 20 or 30 times a day. And every time you see it, you check in. So you're almost preemptively just finding out more about your wiring, honestly. That's cool. Then when you have that that vocabulary, you actually can begin to design the music that you want to play and thus the music that you want everybody else in the room to play.
0: That's awesome. I love commitment devices like that where, you know, like just put something somewhere so I remember that I want to do this thing. And specifically, you know, something that's helping interrupt these conversations we're having at work, you know, when we're collaborating and we want to realize, well, how is this impacting me? Or how am I even perhaps coming across right now?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, like it's, it's not, you know, when I think about work, it's not just at work, right? Diplomacy is the same practice. Mm. How can I actually see whether or not my body is tuned to something that's, that creates possibility between us and, and, you know, the so-called other, or is my body tuned for, yeah, is, you know, am I still tuned to some other fear frequency or some, some other sensation? I I don't like the word frequency because I like to stay in the realm of phenomenology Mm. because it keeps us out of, um, you know, our biases to an extent.
0: So you kind of caught me with this concept of like someone else kind of turning the lights on and off. And I wonder, even if you understand your light switches, is it still possible for someone to hijack?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. I think when you're no longer in conversation with other humans and you're no longer able to, you know, have some sensation, you know, we're, we're built for seeing and hearing each other and for this kind of resonance. We are. So I think when, you know, the day that you no longer have access to that, you either turn into ether, or I don't know what happens, you know, this is enlightenment, maybe, or maybe it's not, maybe it's death, I don't know. But my practice is always that I would like to be fully present, even in the moment of my own death. Mm. And I don't know when that will be. And the question is, when somebody else has hijacked my system, I'm no longer fully present to my own senses which also makes me very ineffective with whomever I'm with. So in the moment of my dying, if say one of my children is present, I'd love to be as fully present with them in that moment as I possibly could be. And that's going to require me not to be hijacked by my fear or any other sense, you know, some idea of how the world ought to go. And, you know, just in day to day, I mean, over these past few years, I had numerous clients who would, turn on the news. I mean even now I was you know I was watching some news earlier today and I was like feeling for these babies in Palestine, you know and mm. I, and I I don't want actually for anyone not to feel that. What I want is for us to have some choice in now where do I go? Where do I go from here? Do I get stuck with the child or do I think okay, well where can I make an intervention so that there might not be a next child? Because when we get stuck in that place, we are no longer effective and moving into the next step. So it's almost like actually feeling it so much that <laughs> <laughs> I can see what the gift is in actually having. And honestly, light switch is a little, right, it's a little facile for the, for the analogy. Yeah. Because also to me, all of those symptoms are teachers, all of them. So when somebody has hijacked my shoulders, I can guarantee you my value system is being checked somewhere something mm-hmm. that matters to me in the world is showing up missing when I am tense. I can guarantee that.
0: Do you think there's room or need for folks to realize how they're impacting others? Or is that the sole duty of the individual to check how the world's impacting them?
1: No, I actually, you know, for me, and, and this is how come I work specifically in leadership. Cause I did work um, as a clinical practitioner for, for a number of years and um, predominantly right with a little bit of organization stuff on the side and one of the things that I realized though was that um you know I could teach people to pay attention to their own body all day and all night but that doesn't change the system unless that person has a you know has a motivation to look outside themselves and make a change with the people around them Mm -hmm. and so you know in a system where that expertise is used specifically for, you know, what it's really needed for. When I would see, you know, childhood illness, oncology or whatever, that's a good use of me in a space with an individual who needs some skills like this. But other than that, a better use of me is to is to have this with somebody who's making a lot of impact and so can not only train a lot of other people to notice it, but for the sake of noticing it so that we can communicate and become a more effective because this is this all of these skills, just like just like all of the other emotions, are contagious, right? So when a leader actually can keep playing with the edge of, of becoming self aware in that way, what they're also doing is showing everybody else in their realm how to do it, mm. right? So think about this, even you know politically in the U.S. If you think about when you or, or you know if you think about um, you know Jacinda Arden, right? Like you go, oh wait, there's a comp- like it's it's not it's not a complicity or an or a complacency. it's 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 a but a willingness to keep getting present, which is different than if you have somebody who's in power who's raging and and both of those things are contagious. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think it's important for individuals to learn but it's especially important for individuals in positions of power to also recognize that that requires that requires their own humility to do. And it also changes the dynamic of how we develop power with each other and the networks that we build around it. So the system, and that's how come I always end up with the system. And it's why I won't work with any leaders who are not willing to do the infrastructure change as well, because this is why I used to work in, I used to work in corporate, right. And I would do these skills, amazing amount of money, you know, made, gotten back, you know, whatever from these big companies. But in the end, I was making life better for maybe a few thousand employees at a time, which is fantastic because they really, these skills really do ripple out very, very quickly. It was actually really fascinating and beautiful to watch. However, having thousands of employees who feel better in themselves, supporting a company that doesn't do things in the world that are what I say matter, you know, and who in the end are not really going to find much purpose in that other than with each other. Yeah, I know, definitely a duty.
0: So you mentioned the importance of working with leaders that are willing to make the infrastructure changes. And I'm curious what that looks like. How does that play out? And is it related to the work that you do around business model innovation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I find that when a business model evolves thoughtfully from the sort of toddlerhood of a company, you know, when they're in high growth, early stages, if they are really thoughtful about how the business model impact looks like, then you don't have to try to retrofit infrastructure change later. I spent a number of years looking at how do we change infrastructure and you can do it in, you know, in a division in a bigger company, but it, you know, essentially often isn't going to change the nature of the outcomes at large for the company. It can. And especially with a, you know, with a leader who's willing to make big infrastructure changes, or at least, you know, model and play it out and, and let it run. But, when you have a smaller business that's growing fast and has the capacity to disrupt an industry, uh, which is where sort of my current focus is that business. When, when the model is designed really, really thoughtfully, you don't really have to deal with infrastructure change later. And you also don't really have to deal with a lot of HR issues. You don't have to deal with I actually like to call it restore humaning rather than human resource because i think humans are not resources but you know you you sort of preemptively change the dynamic right the reason you have to do so much of what 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 consulting really is often especially in the hr realm is we didn't create habits early and often around how we be human together and we didn't create our infrastructure with that in mind i mean just even some of the simple stuff about scaling You know, I watch companies, I was actually watching this with Clubhouse, you know, it's sort of this, you know, growing really fast, but not recognizing how human nature really works. And so when you do that without a, a grounded view of how humans actually interact with one another and what you need to put in place in order to have them do that in a particular way, you know, you end up essentially replicating the world you've already got. Right, And most innovators are not looking to do that. They're actually looking to do something different to disrupt the market. But you run the risk of creating the same world when you don't from the early stage, actually really, and structurally, right? A lot of the stuff is very structural. I think about like hiring policy. When you hire somebody and you've got a contract and it's got a non-compete in it, right? You've essentially said, we own you and your ideas. It's a very different philosophical place to start from than actually nobody owns any of this, you do what you want with it, we'll do what we want with it. Right. And then you have to deal with the financial question of it, but they are intertwined and they are also very, right. They will impact how that human gets to function in the world also going forward.
0: You know, this question about structure and infrastructure reminds me of Conway's law and you know, the notion that any system built by an organization is destined to repeat the structure of the organization that built it. Right. And so if... This organization created itself in toddlership and through adolescence and maybe teenagehood when it was tweening, <laughs> you know, it created some questionable culture or built out some habits, then that's going to influence everything they create and how they come together, how they collaborate, or to use your word, which I'm falling in love with, how they human together. That's fascinating. So one are the, some of the things, like not everyone gets the luxury of just starting fresh. Right. People have these things established. How do they start to break down some of these infrastructure issues or where do you start?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the size of the company, you know, which is, I, you know, I'm always looking for, because I like, because I, I do think in systems, I'm always looking for like, where's the place for me to go in and have the most leverage. And so that really, for me right now is between three to $12 million, but in a growth stage which is also, of course, when a time when a a leader is like totally overwhelmed and doesn't really want to take the time to do any of this stuff. But it's the (laughs) best time, I think, structurally wise, because they can see the impact that it has on their uh, capacity and their team and and on the world. But also they're all close enough to each other that they, you know, they know each other's families names, right? Maybe not everybody knows everybody, but there's a, there's still that feeling. And, you know, these are the size businesses that actually create used to create local stability in economies, and now are creating an interesting network of non-local, but still integrated economies of, right? It's still a, it's still a community in, in a way that it creates, but it also, because it's non-local, can create like more equity, right? If you hire somebody, right? I know there's this thing where smaller companies tend to like hire somebody in the Philippines because it's cheaper, but actually if you pay them as much as you would somebody in the U.S., you actually begin to change the infrastructure of the globe. And most people at that stage are not thinking of themselves as a global company. And yet they have contractors all over the world, right? Because even the structure of employment is breaking down because it's so nationalized, right? Most people can't even figure out companies until they're really large, can't even, and even then they don't really want to figure out how to employ people who are living in different nations because there's so many different sort of the the hoops to to jump through so we're we're you know we're pushing the border of a global economy in 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 so many different ways but a bigger company who wants to do infrastructure change has to start with one person you know the higher up in the company you go the more influence you're going to have so that's kind of how that works but you can do it in a division where first you begin and simply the first simple thing is to create this self-awareness practice where you you know you help you have Five or six skills, you teach people how to notice when they get a little upset and how to find their way back to their body and how to help each other create that feedback loop with each other. And then you have a few other skills that you actually keep recognizing as embodied habits, acknowledgement, making clear requests, knowing the difference, right? These are some of these are pretty, well, I wish they were standard, they're not really standard. But when you do that, then you can actually begin to look at how do you create an infrastructure change so one of my clients i have a few clients who are still in bigger companies and one of them is is looking at how does she change ethics and medicine and research and you know it actually has a lot to do with her willingness to just keep finding the openings Mm. which requires her to have a skill set to keep finding the openings and to stop getting caught right a tree seeks the sun no matter what. It doesn't get caught, right? An iron railing can be there and it'll just keep going. Mm -hmm. So it requires one leader with that level of commitment to the outcome, right? And in her case, she knows that the community is not involved in the research. So she's first she's got to restructure the board, but in order to restructure the board, she's got to get some other pieces moved around in the organization. But her commitment to doing it and to not getting stuck on her own ideas about it or what they will or won't let her do she just finds a way and so it's the it's that's the way that infrastructure actually changes and it's also the way it's built it's actually individuals decisions and capacity to keep finding a way through
0: you know you you mentioned something earlier in the pre-show chat around micro habits and that really kind of struck a chord with me around this idea of you know we have to create Wins that we can recognize as wins. And, you know, we're not going to jump around that iron obstruction in a day, but, you know, if we make a little move and another little move and another little move, we get there.
1: Yeah. What I really love about micro habits, uh, you know, it's such a funny term, but it, you know, practice is what it would have been called in any ancient tradition. But the thing that I love about these little micro habits is that they give you, and people, right? Pe- this is how humans work. We need the little hit of win. Oh, I did that. I managed to sidestep that place where I normally would have gotten upset today. Mm. And that you get that little hit of my body feels easier now than it did. There's another reason learning that vocabulary is to go, oh, you know what? I used to get tightness in my belly every time I had to figure out what what we were going to have for dinner.
0: Mm.
1: And now I don't have that anymore. I didn't have that today. Oh my gosh, look at that. Easy peasy.
0: I was also really fascinated about this notion of like observation but then using the observation as a way of recognizing potential interrupt points, yeah. where then we could kind of like create little almost experiments and say, what if I poke at this? <laughs> like, yeah. what happens? Hmm, okay. <laughs> it really reminds me of like uh, the types of strategies that, you know, they talk about in complexity theory where, you know, let's probe and try to make sense of what's going on. But it's like different language, which I found fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I told you the chaos pendulum would come up. Um, my named Hans- <laughs> Hans-Peter Dor, who used to run the Max Planck Institute for High Energy Physics, was a, a colleague, and he used to come and teach with me. And he used to carry one of these triple pendulums around. But there are a lot of dovetails, right? Complexity theory is also essentially, you know, for me, it's kind of fascinating to watch science figure out things that ancient you know, cultures have been sort of trying to tell us. <laughs> it's always fascinating to watch, you know, 50-year-old science proof, thousand-year-old, you know, practice. I find that even as like teaching people that have microhabit of, of the awareness, even though I say up front, don't try to change anything yet, we're just collecting it. It's just impossible not to begin to go, actually, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> I don't want mm-hmm. to feel like this right now. And the power of micro habits, the power of micro habits is actually, it's fascinating. I've been really paying attention to, and I don't have, I don't have real study. I've been looking for somebody who might want to do some study on this, but there's some, you know, that, that like neural networks or mirror neurons, or, you know, I know there's not technically mirror neurons, but, but that the way we do this actually works asynchronously and over technology to the extent that a group of women in say a Facebook group, who interact regularly will end up on a same similar uh, cycle. Hmm. right? So there's a hormonal, right? And so you know, I, I got really fascinated with this. The, one of the first projects I did, big, big corporate projects, which is why I asked where in Southern Virginia, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the company name, but let's just say it was a big food production company and they were buying another production company at the time. And I went to do a site visit in this tiny little town in Southern Virginia. And the town essentially was just made up of the one company who had hired me and the other company, right? The two two plants, the, um, the other one that they were buying. But one was sort of in the more of the health field and the other one was sort of known for sugary things. And so the margins also were different. So one was making a lot of money, totally different management style, right? Totally different... And essentially, you know, it was like, how do you get, you know, this is change management, but how do you get these people who are already actually having fights in their families, right? Because of this, this disparity to kind of come together. And what I ended up doing was a training for all of the plants on the East Coast, just the plant managers in their you know, sort of semi-annual gathering. And I taught them four or five skills. That was it. And I found out later. I mean, it was amazing. The experience was just amazing because of the way things went down, the amount of emotion in the room, the amount of of people who had been with the company for like literally forty or fifty years since saying, "Never been in such a powerful place." right? Because they're tangible, practical things that they could go implement, and we we have them go do it right away. But the really powerful thing was that I found out later, year over year, the accident rates on the plant floors went down 50% year over year for two years straight in every plant except for the one plant whose manager was not in the room. Wow. I didn't teach anybody except for the 12 people who were in that room. But this was, you know, across 1,000, 1,500 employees, at least
0: six hours. Mm. I think there's some power in the simplicity of just five things too, right? Yeah. Like, wh- How do we focus on like, hey, here's the essential stuff. I want to make sure you really get this. And like a, the number five is pretty magical. You know, Disney did some research, right? It's like, you don't want to get more than five options. Cause then people will get like overwhelmed. So like three to five is kind of the magic territory. So like, I think that's pretty smart just in its simplicity. Plus like if you're at the stuff you're giving them is powerful, they're going to be more likely to put that powerful stuff to use. Cause it's simple. They're going to remember it. That's, that's, that's amazing. Well, wow. Did they get yeah. the other person trained up?
1: <laughs> no, you know, because what had happened was, I guess that person was leaving to go to another company, had gotten sort of poached, mm. I think, to go to another company. Yeah. And uh, so they were kind of halfway out the door. And I guess that's why they didn't show up for the training.
0: Wow. I mean, I guess with the lack of safety improvements in that factory, you'd think they would want to get after that.
1: So, you know what really happened? And this is right. This goes to the infrastructure question. And this was co- this commonly happened to me in in these corporate situations the leader i was originally working with is now a vp of that company so she got promoted within i don't know a couple of months of that project because it changes all of their numbers mm-hmm. because the, the you know self awareness right mindfulness training all of these things they just increase engagement they increase effectiveness right you hit your quotas and you get you know your number your kpis just go out through the roof And so people come and they say, well, what are you doing? So we were in conversation with, you know, spreading that across another segment, but then she got promoted and moved to another country. And now she's VP of that, you know, it's a fortune 50 company and she's a VP of it, but she has to then go to the next place. So the contact then changes, which changes Mm -hmm. the dynamic. So whoever of those managers are still in play may still be doing some level of the work, but this is also why a lot of corporate training just doesn't work because they just, They don't build in follow up and it's actually another one of the reasons why I prefer to work with the smaller companies where I can say, I refuse to work with you. If you won't, if you won't commit to six months,
0: Yep, the coaching, the follow through the after touch points. So, so critical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to know what's different. It's not, I don't want to know. I don't want to know that you checked off the box on leadership development.
0: And also the thing is, is like, I think Ed Morrison has a really interesting analogy or model with his strategic doing framework, all of the stuff they talk about in the framework kind of draws on this kind of river rafting metaphor. So, you know, it's like you have a guide, right? Like a river guide. And, you know, it's kind of complexity informed in the sense that like, you know, sure, they might've gone down the river, but the river is not going to act the same way every time you go down it. Right. And so I can teach you how to go down a river, but if you, (laughs) You're not necessarily just going to go down it by yourself after sitting here or maybe go- yeah. doing a few drills, right? Right. And so I think that's the thing, like when the reason that the extended coaching works so well is because once they encounter the real live situation and they go, oh, what do I do now? You know, And so we get a lot of questions from folks that have attended various trainings around collaboration or design thinking or whatever it is. And they say, you know, I've reached master Excalibur level in this training or whatever, but I still don't know how to use it. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I got all this information, but when it's time to run a meeting with the CEO, I clam up because I don't know what to do. Right. So if you're not there in that moment when they're freaking out and clamming up, like those are the real moments of transformation and learning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, it's like, is is it really a a tool or a skill if, you know, if, when, when the thing really hits the fan and that's, this is also what I love about the the micro habit kind of way of doing things is what I think about is like, I'm creating the conditions under which when something really hits the fan, my body is already trained mm. to know that I have the tool in my pocket. Mm. And so it's like, I don't have to practice on the big rocks. I get to practice on the little rocks, you know, so it, you know that just is so powerful. I think to have have that have the skills be that used that way.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. Well, gosh, I didn't think we would go from acupuncture to micro <laughs> habits and extended coaching programs for retention, but here we are. And I, I think that brings us to a nice place to close. So I want to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought
1: you know I'm aware of the word use the word facilitation and I'm aware of the word facility and both how that works as a place right that's an infrastructure sometimes a facility but also that becoming facile with something uh, means that it's easy right it's easy it makes it easy for us and I, I would have that for not just our personal lives, but for our social systems and lives uh, to have some facility and some ease. So that's what I'm doing.
0: Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Jade. Thanks for joining the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com